Right, so uh, we left off last time, two weeks ago, we were dealing with Hebrews chapter 3. And uh, you remember that this is an epistle that is written to the Jews of the diaspora who tended to be Hellenistic Jews. They tended to be more cosmopolitan, more affluent, and more open to new ideas, the new ideas that were floating around and the different philosophies that were floating around in the Hellenistic world uh, of the time. And so uh, there was a concern on behalf of the author of Hebrews, we don't know definitively who he was, uh, that they were that they were struggling along two fronts. Number one, that they were struggling in that they were so Hellenized, they were so open to different philosophies and different ideas that it may have been impacting uh, their belief in the Messiah. And, and then the other part is, we know that Judaism always has had a high regard for the ministry of angels. The law was mediated through angels and so the struggle, with, the struggle for them was coming to grips with the fact that uh, Christ as the Messiah, they had no problem with him being the Messiah. The problem seemed to lie in that his revelation was, was the culminating revelation and was superior to the revelation that was given on Mount Sinai through the mediation of angels to Moses, so on and so forth. And so there was this tension going on in the author of Hebrews um, uh, found it necessary to address. And so as he goes through this letter, he, he, he works his way through the three pillars of Judaism. C can anybody tell me what the three main pillars of Judaism were and still are? Doug? Um, Moses? And the one, the one that he began with in the first, first, uh, first chapter, angels, and finally the Levitical priesthood. So, so his aim is to use segments of their history that every Jewish person would be familiar with to demonstrate to them that this idea that Jesus as the Messiah was both human and divine and that his his ministry and his revelation was always had always been foretold to be the supreme revelation by contrasting his ministry with the ministry of angels which we've already covered now we're into the ministry of Moses beginning in in um, in Hebrews chapter 3 and then finally we'll be very shortly getting into into the priesthood uh, and we'll, it, it gets really interesting into the priesthood because the, he takes the priesthood well beyond the Levitical priesthood and takes it right back to the priesthood of Melchizedek and spends quite a bit of time um, uh, uh, recounting that. And you know, there's a reason why there are two genealogical listing in the Gospels. One traces the genealogy of Christ uh, in the Davidic line as the as the legitimate king and the other one traces the the genealogy in the succession of the priesthood of Melchizedek so when we get there we'll look at that so anyway 
two weeks ago, we began chapter three, and I'm just going to just read a little bit, and then we'll, we'll come to the notes here. In Hebrews chapter three, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the, hel- of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all, thi- built all things is God. And Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. And so the faithfulness of Moses actually uh, was, was meant to stand as a as a typological representation. So that whole Exodus event, the whole, you, you, can, you can take that whole event of, of, uh, of bondage and deliverance and the whole Exodus account, and it actually stands as a, a metaphor uh, for, what, for what God is doing in, in human history, where he's leading he, he's leading a people out of bondage, right? And, and we know that, that the, uh, the whole world uh, is, is in bondage, right? So it's in bondage to sin, and it's in bondage to the fear of death. Remember, we looked at that early on a few weeks ago. And that Christ came as, uh, as, as Moses was the, the, the Moses of the Exodus, right? The Moses of Israel coming out of bondage. Jesus is the Moses of the people coming out of the bondage of the world, right? He's leading us to the promised land. And so, and so what the author is saying here is that Moses, the story of Moses and the historical, uh, the historical events around Moses is meant for a testimony. It, it stands as a typological representation of what God was doing on a cosmic scale through the, me, through the, uh, the messianic office of Jesus Christ. Okay, verse 6, But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast, the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. And so you remember very early on, I said that, that the author appeared to be concerned that there might be some who were, who were, in, this, who were in this group um, who, were, who were part of the, of the Messianic Jewish community in the diaspora who had not fully committed uh, to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Well that he was the savior, the redeemer. So we have to, we have to keep in mind the, the stark difference in understanding between how we understand the messianic office and how Judaism understands the messianic office, right? So as I've said repeatedly now, Judaism believes that in any given period, there is someone who, can, who qualifies to be the Messiah, right? And that the Messiah would be fully human. He would be in the line of David, but that he would be fully human. So, so, so we have to adjust our understanding. And so if you were a Jewish person, you could, you could 
understand how Jesus could be the Messiah, yet not be divine, and yet not have his revelation be superior to that of angels. And so not only that, but if you talk to a Jewish person today, it's all about Moshe. Moshe, Moshe, Moshe. Moshe is their top gun, is their top prophet. And so it's still that way today. And what the author is saying here, look, you know, Moses, he was faithful. He was a faithful servant in the house. And his faithfulness was an expression, was a typological representation of what Christ as the human divine Messiah would accomplish on a cosmic scale. Not something just restricted to Jews, but also he would affect this for Gentiles as well, right? So there's a remnant of Jews and there's a remnant of Gentiles. Okay, and so therefore the son who is the owner of the house, right? He is the builder and owner of the house, has more honor. And then verse 6 that we just read says, whose house we are if... We hold fast the confidence of our rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now, I, I didn't really talk about this in our last session, but I want to spend a few minutes talking about it now because, because it's, it, it's important to where the author in Hebrews, where he's leading from here. But you'll see, and, and uh, if you have sat under my ministry here at Sovereign Grace Church, you will have heard multiple times that at any given time, uh, among, the peop among the place where God's people gather together, now I use that term nominally, right? That God is always working a twofold program, right? He's working a twofold program. He calls people, he calls a multitude of people into the place where God's people gather together. And with some of them, he's working salvation. And with others, he's working damnation, right? And you see this reflected in the parable of the wheat and tares, right? And so how did those tares get to where the wheat are? Well, if you, the enemy sowed them, but the enemy could not sow them without the permission of God. So there's a reason why, there's a reason why God allowed the enemy to sow tares among the wheat. What is that reason? Because if you remember the parable of the wheat and tares, they're indistinguishable from each other until they come to what? Until it comes to the harvest, until they have reached maturity and the time for the harvest has come. So God is working a twofold program, and we see this expressed among other places in the book of Jude, where, where uh, let me just read the passage to you. In Jude, in Jude 1, verse 5, well, let me read verse 4 so we have some context, where, the, where Judas, who is what's really his name, uh, is warning the church to be diligent against, uh, against the entrance of false teachers who have come into the church. If you sat under my study in Jude, done here last year, you'll see that, that Peter warned, they will be coming to you. And so by the time of Jude, 
they had entered in. And so he says in verse 4, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, interesting, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So X, God brought X amount of people out of the place of bondage, uh, and, but not all of them were redeemed. And those who weren't redeemed, he killed. He, they, they died in the wilderness, right? He called the flock, right? And, and we also see this. And so let's look at this for a moment. Let's, let's kind of put our minds in this. So what did it take? So I want you to keep in mind the parable of the wheat and tares, right? The wheat, the tares are undistinguishable from the wheat until the, until the point where they reach full maturity. Keep that in mind, okay? Now, let's go to the Exodus. Now, in the Exodus, God, God brought, I don't know, I think the number, the number was somewhere around how many? No, no, but how many millions of people? Yeah, like five million people out. And so, so there, is, there is the birth, right? There is the birth. So there's 10 million people there. But how many people entered the promised land? We don't know the exact number, right? Because those, for, those who were 18 and under did go in, right? But everyone who was 18 and older, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, their bodies dropped in the wilderness. So the best testament you could have is the, the numbering of them when they're right on the edge uh, of coming in. Prior to a Kadesh Barnea or after the 40 years? After the 40 years. Yeah. I don't know what that number is, but just for the sake of, just for discussion's sake, let's say that after 40 years, that number had been whittled down to one and a half million, okay? So let's say those one and a half million that went in were genuinely considered to be the people of God. What did it take? It took, it took time for those who were and those who were not to be marked out or the, to mark themselves out. Let's use it that way. To mark themselves out. And how did those who were not believers mark themselves out. They marked themselves out because at, along that way, in that journey, they faced 10, God tested them 10 times. 10 times. And they failed. And finally God said that. That's what the author is getting through here when he says, we are his house if we hold fast our confession and the hope of our faith firm till the end, right? Yes. So that's a statement for us to know ourselves to be in the house, basically. Uh, we know that we are part of his house if we make it to the end. Well, yeah, the, the problem with that is, is you won't know that till you, till you get to the end, and you don't know when the end is. But there are other things in there, but yes, that's absolutely true. Joe? Yeah, well, 
so I, I just I want to finish off this thought here, right? The problem with that discloses itself in Matthew chapter 7. So turn to Matthew chapter 7 for a moment. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now this group of people goes before Christ, will go before Christ absolutely convinced in their mind that they were true disciples, that they were mer working miracles in the name of God, and yet Christ looks at them and names them as those who were practitioners of lawlessness. Where's the disconnect in all of that? Where's the disconnect? And that's what the author of Hebrews is, is exploring. He's going to show how that disconnect happens. It doesn't happen all at once. It happens over the course of time. It's very subtle, like the erosion of water, like the erosive effect of water. Doug, you had, some, oh, Joe, did there something you want to say? Well, well, yeah, there are those, right? There are false prophets. I mean, uh, Isaiah talks extensively about this. I'm doing, like, probably the deepest book study I've ever done in the book of Isaiah right now. And from front to back, Isaiah condemns the spiritual leaders who were in it only for the prophet because they could gain something out of it. I would throw Benny Hinn in that category. But this group is actually convinced that they're true. So that's the problem with, with so, so when I think of this, I said, well, how could they be, how did they get so deceived into thinking that they, into thinking that Christ looks at them and says, you were practitioners of lawlessness. That's what he sees when he looks at them. When they look in the mirror, they say, true and faithful disciples of Christ. Obviously, the assessment of the, of the Savior is the correct one. The question in my mind is, by what method did they become so deceived into thinking that they were true disciples when they never were? And that's what the author of Hebrews is really driving at here. Okay. All right. So... At any given time, so you can take this to the bank, at any given time in the place where God's people are gathering together. Again, I use that term nominally. Let's say nominally. Where I'll just use it as Christ, with Christians, although it also applies with Judaism too. Wherever God's people gather together, God is working a twofold plan. With some, he's working a plan of redemption. With others, he's working a plan 
of damnation. For example, we just read in Jude about men, false prophets who would come into the church, who were marked out, that is, ordained for this condemnation long ago. God brings them into the church and enters into, the judge, enters into judgment with them in the church because of what they do in the church, and yet God uses what they're doing in the church to identify the, the wheat from the tares. You see how that all works out? Think about, you know, one of the things that dawned on me in my study of Isaiah. Do you know that since the Babylonian captivity, what, why did God lead Judah into captivity? Because of their idolatry. They were idol worshipers. You know that post-Babylonian captivities, the Jews have never engaged in idolatry again? They never engaged in idolatry again. They put away their idols. Right? Yeah, well, you got to look at the definition of idolatry in Isaiah. So, the reason I go, I don't, I don't think that they're putting up things for Tammuz or Baal or uh, any of that. But there is a sense in which they have made the law yeah, but that, see, that's not the biblical definition of idolatry. The biblical definition of idolatry is spelled out in the book of Isaiah. Pagan idolatry. So, oh, let me qualify it. They've never returned to pagan idolatry. To fashioning, fashioning gods of wood instead of sacrificing. They've never returned to that since the Babylonian captivity. Right? And so, and so, but so think about it. God brought Nebuchadnezzar into Israel, wrecked havoc. Mind you, Nebuchadnezzar, in my estimation, was a pretty patient guy. Because they rebelled three times against him. Finally, on the third time, he said, that's it. I'm done with, this guy, with these guys. Right? And on the first deportation, he took, out their, he took out their leadership. The second invasion, he took out their economic vitality and finally the third he took out their spiritual leadership and destroyed the temple destroyed their worship system but god god used the babylonians now there's a lot of debate as to whether or not nebuchadnezzar was redeemed but there's no debate as to the issue of cyrus right there's nothing to indicate that cyrus was a redeemed persian king and he, he wreaked a lot of havoc, and yet God used him to do what? To free the captives, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So, so God uses, again, I've strayed far from my point, but that God is working a two-fold, a two-fold program. Now, because God used Cyrus... To free the Jews, he turned his wickedness and his evil nature to release the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. It doesn't therefore mean that Cyrus was redeemed as a result of it, right? Okay. But the question remains, again, in my mind, how is it that at the end of days, 
there are going to be a bunch of people who are going to come up before the Lord and, and be absolutely astounded that they were not believers. How does one come to that? Okay. No, well, because it actually gets answered in the book of Hebrews. Okay. No, he's just giving you a mental... All right. So, uh, so he goes on in verse 7 and says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, saw my works 40 years, therefore I was angry with that generation and said... They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my, in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, so, so he makes that point, and it's, and it's a, uh, again, it's a, it's a quotation from Psalm 95, right? And Psalm 95 is a, it begins with a call to worship. And then it breaks off into this in the, in the letter, the second half of the psalm, where God is, in, is, is calling them in their worship to reflect back on what happened to their forefathers in, in, the, in, in the Exodus. And to see if they could spot any corollaries between the mistakes that the fathers made and what they were doing themselves. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Okay. All right, now let's go to the notes for a little bit here. Uh, okay. On page one, the context of the wilderness experience of the Israelites after the Exodus, all the wonders they saw, yet when the big test came at Kadesh Barnea, they failed. They wept. Remember, we looked at this in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 two weeks ago. They wept. They complained. They cried. And finally, they accused God of leading them into the wilderness to kill them. And so um, their bodies all dropped in the wilderness over the next 40 years. And which brings us to the second parenthetical warning. What is a parenthetical warning? It's when the writer breaks from the narrative to make connection and application to the lives and attitudes of the intended audience of the writings. Here, the Jews of the diaspora. So the warning of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, begins with, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You see... So the, now, that word unbelief also can be translated as disbelief, all right? And so it's, it's a heart that is, that is given to disbelief that initiates the point of departure from God. So um, to beware is to stand as a guard and sentry over the attitude and direction of your heart because where your heart leads, your person will follow. So beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing of the, of the, of the living God. So we already talked about this. Our concluding discussion in the last session was on the twofold program. The question is, how do I know which group I belong to? 
How do I know which group I belong to? If there can be that degree of deception, which clearly the scriptures indicate there can be, how do I know that I'm not in that group? How do you know that you're not in that group? See, therein lies the question. Therein, how, do, how do I know? Well, because I, I believe Jesus is, is Lord in my heart. Well, they did too. They call him, remember, they call him Lord, Lord. Right? So there is the question. How do I know? So I've got here a, a self-examination in what I call a truthful soliloquy. What's a soliloquy? It's an internal discussion. You know, when I used to teach at the Christian school up in East Hampton, I would stand outside in the portico during lunch break, and the kids would come up to me and say, Pastor Rizzo, are you all right? You're talking to yourself. No, it's not. It's called soliloquy, right? I'm talking to myself. Every choice, and here it is, every choice and decision that I make is a choice in that moment between truth and error, steadfast and apostasy. What do my choices and decisions reflect on a daily basis? What do those decisions and choices indicate about my heart? Right? So, so how do we know? We are, we are to be constantly engaged in the process of self-examination. Right? For, uh, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Turn there for a moment. Thirteen and verse five. Look at what it says in verse five. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. So we are told to examine ourselves whether or not we are in the faith and to test ourselves. Okay, how do we do that? How do we test ourselves? How do we examine ourselves? So, so here it is, is the easiest way to avoid having to examine ourselves and test ourselves is to spend a lot of time examining and testing others. Others? others. True. Right? Sure. And you'll find that whatever it is that we don't struggle with, we'll, we'll determine that to be the mark of a true Christian. <laughs> right? Right? That's what we tend to do, right? So, so how, do I, how do I test myself? How do I examine myself? Right, and so that's true, right? How do you handle the trials, right? So... A lot of times, you know, over the course of, of, um, of my ministry, probably one of the areas that I've had most success in is counseling, right? And I find with counseling, the, the, the key ingredient to helping someone overcome 
some sort of obstacle or barrier in their lives is to helping them take that bad thing or what they perceive to be a bad thing and have them recalibrate it under a sovereign God. That changes everything. It changes everything. When you recalibrate that negative experience or, you know, with a lot of the people that I've, that I've counseled has been sexual trauma, some sort of sexual trauma or another. Okay, God is sovereign, then there's a reason why he ordained that you should pass through that. Right? And so, so to your point, Megan, how do we deal with the difficult times in our lives? So we go to the scriptures. What is, so what would be a, a good place, let's say you're going through a hellish time in your life, right? What would be a good book to the Bible to turn to to get some guidance on how to properly react as Job? How about when you're undergoing periods of depression and anxiety? Psalms, right? So what happens? So here it is. Here's what happens. You won't know what the proper response is. You got to know what it is ahead of time. You got to know what it is ahead of time. So, so that when the test comes, right? So Job's wife said, "Why do you hold on to your integrity? Curse God and die, right?" Job said, wait a minute, I've gotten, we've gotten all good things from God. Should we not therefore accept even the bad things that come from him? Right? So that's the proper way to respond. But you won't know that if you, if you don't know it ahead of time. Right? Because then you, then you go, ah, oh, man, I didn't, react to, I didn't react in that situation the way I should have. And the only way you know how you should have reacted is if you knew how you should have reacted ahead of time. So Which means what? Well, it's going to happen to all of us. That's how we learn things, right? The school of hard knocks. Right? And you find in the midst of that that Job had genuine human emotions. You know what? A stillborn child would have been better off than me. You know, what, curse the day that my mother brought me forth. You know, those were, those were all honest, legitimate human expressions of a person who'd gone through devast, utter devastation in his life. Did God condemn him for that? No. No. Who condemned him for it? His three friends. And guess what, guys? The New Testament equivalent to that is when someone is going through a miserable time like that and they get the Romans 8.28 thrown into their face. But Romans 8.28 could be that celebrated statement of putting it under the sovereignty of God also. Well, sure. But you know what? I don't need to hear that when I'm going through hard times because chances are I know every syllable better of it better than most right and so and so when a person is in pain the quotation of bible verses that are absolutely true doesn't it 
the, if you read what Job's three friends were saying to him, they were all, it was all truth. It just was being misapplied in his case, in his state of mind, right? And he called them what? Faithless counselors, right? Because rather than what they should have just done, the best thing they could have done was just sit there with him, keep their mouths shut, and just be there with him. How do you know? The first thing that came to mind, outside of the principle that we were just talking about, you need to be looking into that mirror that scripture is and examining yourself. So there's got to be a regular, I like the word daily because scripture seemed to have that mentality about it, daily looking into the word and seeing my picture. There it is. There it is. There it is, right there. And, and the scripture, which is taught to us by the Spirit, he searches the hearts and minds of people. Yeah, there it is, right there. And that is really, that is really, you know, I, I don't want to make this a blanket statement because I recognize that God calls different people to different things, right? But I know that in my life, I, I absolutely crave the scripture. It's my heroine. I can't live without it. I just, I just can't live without it. I would be insane without it, you know? And I know I used kind of like an off-color term. It doesn't really work, but you get the point, right? With me, it's not take it or leave it with me it's it's it it carries almost the force of a compulsion so i'm not saying that it has to be that way to the to the same degree that it is with me with everybody but i think that that if god's word is the bread of life as christ said right didn't christ say man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, where's every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God recorded? Here. Then this is what gives life and sustains it. So that there should be some sort of craving for God's word to God's children. So the question is, do you have a craving for God's word? Do you have a craving for it? And I, I'm not my business to judge anybody, I, but where I'm examining myself here and I'm testing myself, right? How am I reacting to situations, right? Oh, I blew that one, you know, or I didn't react right or, you know, I didn't, there was no need for that four-letter word, you know, those kinds of things. So... So this is the kind of thing that we're, we are to engage in, right? We're to examine ourselves. Okay. Did something you... I had a question. Yeah. Can I ask a sure, go ahead.
Yes. But you haven't said it wasn't just a fun thing for a couple of years and then you've fallen away, but you you remained right at the end. You kept your faith right up to your dying day. Yes, but it, right, but he, it is. But it all he also makes another point here too about the, there's a concept of rest here, right? That he, he's gonna enter into discussion of over the next few verses. You can be a believer but not have entered into his rest. Right? So the rest is defined as you don't have to work, you don't have to live your life in fear anymore. You don't have to fear what's coming next. So in a sense, that's entering into, into the rest that has been provided to the believer. So the, so the rest that's talked about here is not just a location. It's not just heaven. It's here too. We have entered into that rest, right? So part of, and part of that rest involves Christ coming in the form of human, right? And, and defeating the devil who used death as a tool to keep humanity in bondage. We've been free from that. Therefore, we don't have to fear death. It's not something that we need to fear. We don't need to fear going hungry. We don't need to fear all of those things. And so that's a hard thing to do. It really is a hard thing to do to live life like that. And I don't, I'm not sure, I know I haven't attained it yet, to the point where I don't worry about those things. Is there anyone here who doesn't worry about those things? You know, you, I think, I think the more you, you go on, I think you worry less about them, you know, because you find out along the way where you've beaten yourself up over nothing, you know, you've worried yourself over nothing when God had it all covered. I, so, so there's a sense in that in the rest involves not having to live life in constant fear and worry and anxiety. Yes, Doug. Right. Right. Now let's 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 explore that just a little bit more. So we have to remember when God deals with Israel, he's dealing with a nation. Absolutely. So it's like he's dealing with one person. Mm -hmm. Right? 
Israel my son. Right? So, so look at this. So Israel did not fulfill their part of the covenant. Did they stop being God's son? No, it's like if you have if you have a son or a daughter, right, who completely disregards you, who completely rebels against you, and it ends up being a something that causes a break in the relationship. The relationship may break, but they will always be your son and daughter. You see? And so as as your son or as your daughter, they would have access to certain things that would make their lives a lot easier if they avail themselves of it. But if the relationship is broken or severed, then they don't have access to those things. So that's the sense in which we, we need to understand rest here, right? Or at least one of the aspects of rest here. So... Even though they didn't enter into that rest, they did not stop being the people of God. They, they did not lose ownership of the land that was given to them through the Abrahamic covenant. It was theirs. So God deals with Israel as one man, right? Okay. So now is it possible that Christ deals with the church as one person? We'll close with that question. Is there any evidence in the New Testament that Christ deals with the church as one as one entity? Let's use it. Let me use that term as one entity. What what were you gonna say? The bride of Christ. So so now let's take let's take this term bride, right? When you think of bride and when you think of God, what book in the Old Testament gives the, just the wonderful picture of that? Hosea. Well, it is a wonderful picture because it demonst it demonstrates his faithfulness, but but you know what? It also demonstrates that the faithfulness of God and the harlot wife, actually, her heart is changed by the faithfulness of her husband who still loves her in spite of her harlotry, in spite of her unfaithfulness. And it's his love that changes her heart. You see? And so now, let's look at the Bride of Christ, right? So the Bride of Christ is his church. We know that the Bride, which is the true church, is ex made exclusively up of believers, okay? Now, is it possible within the confines of that relationship for the individual members of that one body to, to cause a break in the relationship? You, that's actually a debatable point. Well, well, according to 1 Corinthians, it is. If one body, if one member suffers, what? The whole body suffers. That's an interesting topic to explore, but at another time. Right? Let's, so let's keep it at the individual level. 
So would it, would it be possible, let's say I'm a member of the Bride of Christ, right? Aside from whether my disobedience has an impact on the entire body, does it have an impact on me? It has an impact on me. Does it have an impact on my, on my relationship with the Savior? Yes, it does. Does that potential impact, therefore, impact the, I don't want to say benefits, but the, well, I'll just use that term, the benefits of being in a relationship with the Savior? It could, right? But does, but, but does that change the nature of the relationship? No. But it does cut me off from certain benefits of the relationship, yes. 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 And so and so it's it's important for us to kind of keep all this in mind as we go through this. Okay. Well, we're almost out of time, so verse 12 and I'll just so beware brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So how do we deal with that? Well, we we examine and test ourselves daily, but notice what it says and I want to leave you with this. The next verse. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That is a command. Number one, are we fulfilling it? Number two, can we even fulfill it? Number three, what would it take to fulfill it? Well, there's, well, you have to figure out what exhort means, right? But the key there that, that questions my mind whether we are capable of fulfilling it is we are to exhort one another. We don't have a problem with that, but it says it's to be done on a daily basis. Not on a weekly basis. It says on a daily basis, and that's given as a command. The question is, are we doing it? Can we even do it, given the culture? So does that, are we saying that, that the whole church needs to be gathering daily, or just part of the church needs to gather daily? Yeah, I, I think that's it. I think, I, I think what it's pointing to is, is that, um, that, and I use this term loosely, that believers should do life together. That doesn't necessarily mean that every believer in any given location should be doing life together every single day. Right? But believers should do life together. The question is, A, are we? And B, can we? See, because the context here is, and it's, you'll still find it to be true in the, among the Jewish community, they're a very tight-knit group. They do life together. We Western Europeans, we don't do life together. You know, and I'm the biggest offender of it. You know, I like my space. I like my, 
you know what? It's, hey, how are you? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I'll see you next week. You know, but is that right? So, so I want to leave you with that because I think that this is an important thing for us to, because this is one of the things that is given to us as something that we can use in protecting ourselves from developing a heart of unbelief. And the heart of unbelief is what leads us into apostasy. Right? So we'll leave it at that. And, yes? Good point. Good point. Well, how can you? So, so, so here's the thing, and I, I, you know, I spent quite a bit of time thinking about this. So, first of all, what happens when you do life together? When you do life together, you become very familiar with the people that you do life together with, and you are able to identify those areas in their lives where they seem to struggle. And because you do that, you're able to come alongside of them, just like it says in Galatians chapter 6, right, and minister to them without being judgmental or condemning, right? The question is, can we legitimately lay claim to being able to do that today? It really isn't, is it? It really isn't, is it? And so, you know, I remember, so I lived for a time in Italy in a very small town just outside of Naples. And the, it was a town that was actually probably built in the 12 or 1300s, you know. So, the way the town was set up is that there were compounds, right? There was a, 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 a gated walled area with doors, and within that portico, within those doorways, there were four or five residences where four or five families lived. And I remember we lived in one of those for a time, and we became very familiar with each other. You know, our, our grandparents, they all, there was a, a common oven, you know, where they used to bake the bread. And so there was, so th that was life. So it was more conducive. But we, we don't have that. Today. I know the Jewish community still does. They're a very tight-knit community. I mean, you go to Crown Heights and, you know, you, I mean, you see this, you'll experience it down there. But you'll even see it here. You know, like if you go into Longmeadow, they have the, you know, the Jewish Community Center, and they have their own little enclave there. Schools and synagogues and nursing home. And yeah, it's the center of life. So they do life together. But can we do life together? Can we? So, okay, so that answers the question, we can. It is possible. I think we can. Um, I, we, we, 
No, we're not. We're not. Well, the one thing that the Virgin Islands have is that if they have the assembling of the brethren, but even more so, like you see today in Rosen, that's a call for us to be together on Friday night or Sunday or whatever, maybe the Bible says. So we're being called to be together more. It's not right now, it's going to be the church we've got to you know? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a... Uh, it, it seems to put us on the horns of a dilemma. That's a command. That's not optional. And and for different cultures and different churches, I mean, we're commenting about what we see here. But I've been in other communities. You know, I've been in some messianic congregations that are really, 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 really tight. They're messianic. It's part of their culture. They're Jewish. They're tight-knit to begin with. Yeah. You know? And so, and so I, think, I think part of the problem is, is because we're a melting pot, you know, here. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I, what got me thinking about this is, you know, with everything that I've been through over the last couple of weeks, I've reconnected with the members of my family that I hadn't really connected with in a long time, and yet I found it easier to connect with them. I found it very easy to connect with them. Why? Because there's a common heritage there. There's a common history there, right? And so I, I think... These are obstacles that we have to find a way to overcome because it's a command in the scripture, right? The question is, how do we do it? Because to the degree that we don't do it, we place ourselves in jeopardy of what verse 12 warns us against, an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Because here's the thing, we're way past time, is the things that I need to see about myself, most of the time I can't see them. I need someone who knows me well enough and who cares about me well enough to take the time to see them and then be willing to point them out to me. In the way that, you can In the way that I can receive that, which means they have to know me. They have to know my personality. How can that type of relationship develop on a once-a-week basis? Can it develop? Yes. 